Well, good morning, Christ Central Church. As Daniel said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here and really grateful to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. This is our next to last week in our study of the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5. And this week we're going to be looking at the fruit of self-control. And so at this time I'd like you, if you are able, to stand uh, for the reading of God's word. Our text this morning comes from another of Paul's letters from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. This is God's word. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is true. We thank you for how you speak to us through your word. And we ask that you would do that again this morning. That you would use this holy scripture to enliven our hearts and remind us of your goodness and faithfulness to us. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. This past week, I was sitting on my couch with my feet propped up and had a bag of chips in my lap and probably had some crumbs on my chest and had a glass of wine on the table beside me and a smartphone in one hand and the TV control in the other. And I was just mindlessly flipping through the endless supply of subpar programming that's always at my fingertips. So I think you can get the picture. And as I was doing this, I couldn't help but marvel at how consistent the message that was coming at me from each and every channel and, and through each and every app that I clicked on. And that message was indulge. Satisfy those longings. Submit to your appetites. And then underneath this message was this subtle reminder that self-control is absolutely unnecessary. It's a complete waste of time. The world that we live in is begging with us, pleading with us to consume, is it not? Not just consume what we need, but rather to consume far more than we need, far more than often is good for us. In many ways, our economy depends on whether or not we succumb to this request to consume. And because of this reality, self-control may in fact be the most countercultural fruit of the Spirit. Now, just because it's countercultural doesn't mean that we can't do it. It just means that it's going to be very difficult, especially in this day and age where mass media has become so effective at getting their messages in us. Yet contrary to the cultural milieu, the Bible says that 
Self-control is something that the Christian cannot live without. King Solomon says it this way in the book of Proverbs. He says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. His point is clear. Without self-control, like a city with no walls, we are vulnerable. Vulnerable to every temptation that comes our way. And so this morning, in light of this reality, we're going to look at how do we go about building up that wall of self-control so that we can be strong in the face of the onslaught of temptation that we are faced with each and every day. I have three points this morning about this this fruit of self-control. First, what is it? Secondly, where is it needed? And last, how do we cultivate it? So let's begin. What is self-control? I want you to look again with me at our text. Uh, The picture that Paul gives us for self-control is the life of an athlete. Verse 25 says that to be a good athlete is to exercise self-control in all things. What Paul, Paul is pointing out here is that an exceptional athlete doesn't become so overnight, but rather their whole lives have to be ordered around athletics, what they eat, how much time they exercise, how hard they exercise, how much time they sleep, how much time they spend on leisure activities and so on. There are countless restrictions that athletes place upon themselves in order to excel in their sport and hopefully win. Which brings us now to a definition of self-control. I think the best definition of self-control is purposeful restrictions. You see, self-control is to say no to certain things for the purpose of something greater. Now, as a parent of four small children, I'm reminded every day that restrictions, no matter how purposeful they are, they just stink. My kids hate rules. And yet I'm often trying to show them or convince them that that the restrictions that my wife and I place on them are actually for their good. We are saying no to something for them so that we can say yes to something even greater. For example, we're saying no to them running in the street so that we can say yes to them not getting hit by a car. The athlete says no to sleeping in, to eating unhealthy, to a life full of leisure, all for the purpose of winning the prize. And that is what self-control is all about. It's purposeful restrictions in order to achieve something even more desirable. What Paul is saying is that the Christian life demands these sort of purposeful restrictions. It demands a saying no to certain things for the purpose of even greater things. Which brings us to our second point. Where is self-control needed in the life of the Christian? Or or maybe better stated, what does self-control look like for a follower of Christ? Paul helps direct us to places where a Christian is to embrace self-control by listing the works of the flesh prior to this list that we find in Galatians 5 of the fruit of the Spirit. And according to Paul, these are the behaviors that crop up whenever the Spirit's fruit are absent. And so I want you to listen to this list from verse 19 of Galatians 5. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I find this really helpful, not simply because of what this list includes, but also because of what it does not include. You see, because it includes sexual immorality and orgies, but not sex. Because it includes fits of anger and rivalries, but not conflict. Because it includes drunkenness, but not alcohol. And you see, church, there's this subtle danger that when trying to cultivate this fruit of the Spirit, we believe that self-control is the absence of pleasure altogether. We begin to, to think that maybe God is opposed to us enjoying life here on earth. And yet we know this not to be true, and we see it as early as Genesis chapter 2. Remember, God is creating the world for his people, for us. And, and it says in verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I don't want you to miss this. When God created trees, he didn't simply have their utility in mind. He did not create them simply as machines to produce food. The text says he chose to make them pleasant to the sight. He made them beautiful. And not only are the trees nice to look at, but the fruit that they produce, it tastes good also. Have you ever thought about the fact that God could have made consumption of nutrition very monotonous and boring? You know, eating could have been like taking medicine, like a necessary task that, that provides no real pleasure whatsoever. But that's not what God did, did he? Eating, for me, is one of my favorite things to do in the whole world. And I believe that God loves that I love to eat. Church, God is, is in no way opposed to pleasure. In fact, this fruit of the Spirit reveals the exact opposite. God wants us to have self-control, not to limit our pleasure in this life, but rather to maximize our pleasure in this life. This fruit reveals to us that the way to maximize pleasure is to enjoy these good gifts that God has given us, but within reason. That through these purposeful restrictions, we will find the most joy. But the question then is, how do we know the difference between enjoying God's good gifts and a lack of self-control? Where then is the line, if you will? I think Paul's insight in Philippians 3 is really helpful here. He, he describes those who lack self-control as ones whose God is their belly. You see, a lack of self-control exists when our appetites take over when they become our God, if you will. It's when our desire to indulge becomes greater than our desire to obey. When these good gifts from God become our masters. And that's how we end up at those works of the flesh that Paul listed, isn't it? By valuing those pleasures above God. And that's the answer to the question of, of where self-control is needed in the life of the Christian. It's, it's needed anywhere that our appetites are becoming unruly and are taking control. Now, what's interesting about our appetites is that these places of need are different for all of us. See, for some of us, this need for self-control shows up most when it comes to food. And this has nothing to do with your weight, but rather when the role 
that food plays in your heart and in your life becomes too great. You see, for some of us, food is something that's more than a good gift from God, but something that we look to for comfort or security or, or too much pleasure. For some of us, it's money. We are buried in debt, and yet we simply don't have the self-control to stop spending beyond our means. We believe that buying this thing or that thing will, will make us happy or feel like we're enough. For some of us, it's entertainment. We spend hours upon hours watching TV, checking Instagram, online gaming, and the like. And we tell ourselves that we're in control, but deep down, we know that our devices are controlling us. For some of us, it's drugs or alcohol. We try so hard to present to the world someone who's in control of their consumption, but the truth is that we overconsume time and time again. You see, we desire being numb more than we desire him. For some of us, it's in our speech that self-control is nowhere to be found. We know that self-control means to not blast someone behind their back or, or maybe to make that comment on Facebook. But our fingers seem to have a mind of their own, and before we know it, we've gone ahead and clicked send. For some of us, it's sex. Although we know that God's design is for sex to exist in the confines of marriage, and yet our appetites propel us outside of those boundaries that we either run to the rampant hookup culture or maybe the quick fix of pornography that is so incredibly easy to access. You see, although the battle is different for all of us, the truth is that we all struggle. Why? What is wrong with us, church? Why is self-control so hard? I think the answer is rather simple, but often rarely stated. And that is that indulgence is fun. Amen? Maybe not the best place for an amen, but overeating and stuffing our face full of sweets, is, it's actually pretty satisfying, at least in the moment. Posting that nasty comment on Facebook definitely offers that rush of adrenaline that we all crave. Drinking too much and having sex with someone who is not your spouse is absolutely going to bring you some level of satisfaction. See, the reason why self-control is so hard is because each and every one of us on some level wants to sin. This brings us now to our third and final point. How then do we cultivate this fruit that it seems like deep down we don't actually desire. I've got a vegetable garden in my backyard. And this year I got real excited about gardening and I did a lot of Googling and YouTubing and I got pretty aggressive with my pruning and trimming and weeding. And yet for some reason we've had a terrible harvest. I tried really hard, but I failed just the same. And I can't help but, but laugh at this fresh reminder that I actually don't have the ability to make things grow. That's actually God's job. Church, before we talk about how to cultivate this fruit, I need to remind us all that we actually can't. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves to manufacture more control in these areas, in drinking, in sex, in food, in our speech, you fill in the blank. But the good news that we all need to hear is that we don't have to. 
You see, because God's son came down, and the author of Hebrews says that he faced every temptation that we do, but he embodied perfect self-control, and he succumbed to none of it. And then he went to the cross, and he took our gross lack of self-control upon himself. He dealt with it once and for all. Although Jesus is no longer here, he has risen. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Before he left, he gifted all who believe in him with the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to grow these fruit in us. They're the fruit of the Spirit. And we can trust that he will, Philippians 1, finish this work that he has started in each of us. That's good news. Now, although we cannot manufacture this fruit, there is in fact something that we can do in keeping with our garden metaphor. And I know this isn't a perfect analogy, but I think it works. And that is that our job is to be the trellis. We need to be the trellis. Now think about it. What does a trellis do in a garden? A trellis simply positions itself to receive the growth Is that not what growing in holiness is all about? We, like the trellis, simply position ourselves in such a way for God to do his thing, to grow the fruit of the Spirit in us. So how do we do that? Our text says that the way we position ourselves to receive the growth is twofold. It's by having a clear picture of the crown and by growing more and more in our longing for that crown. Look with me again at verse 24. It says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. As a golf fan and a a below average player, I've always been fascinated by Tiger Woods. Not just by his golf game, but but also by his story. And a, a recent biography came out last year that talked about how Tiger's life has been marked by purposeful restrictions, by saying no to certain things for the purpose of another. You see, Tiger had almost no interactions with other kids growing up. He spent very little time playing games, goofing off, just being a kid. You see, because Tiger had a clear picture of the crown that he wanted. And because of that picture, he said no to a lot so that he might win and win often. You see, but there's a problem with the crown that that Tiger seeks. Look at verse 25. Paul says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable. What Paul is saying is that the crown that the athlete seeks, it doesn't last. All those trophies that Tiger has laid up in his house, they're going to rust and be forgotten. The good news for you and for me is is that we as Christians uh, seek this prize that is imperishable. It lasts forever. But what is the crown that we are to seek? Paul tells us in the two verses prior to our text, he shows us what motivates his self-control. He says, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. See, the crown that that Paul seeks is that others might share in the blessings of Christ with him. 
I used to work for a ministry called the Navigators, and the motto of this ministry was to know Christ and to make him known. And that's what Paul's life was all about. That was his aim, his prize, his mission. He lived to know Christ and for others to know him also. Churches, is that your aim? Is that the prize that you seek? Is that the prize that motivates you to the fruit of self-control? Does it motivate you to purposeful restrictions, to say no to something so that you might gain that prize, the prize of knowing him and making him known? So that's the first way that the text says we are supposed to position ourselves to receive the growth. We have to know this prize that we seek, but that's not enough. In order to best position ourselves to receive God's growth, we have to grow more and more in our longing for that crown. How do we do that? How do we develop that longing? A few weeks ago, Daniel referenced the famous Bob Newhart skit where Newhart plays a counselor who's trying to help a lady who's terrified of being buried alive in a box. And, and Newhart's way of helping her is by telling her and over and over again, just stop it to stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. And, and the skit is funny because it's ridiculous. We all know that we don't overcome our fears by simply willing ourselves to stop it. In the same sense, church, we don't grow in the fruit of self-control by simply willing ourselves to regain control. The scary truth is that we are always going to pursue that which we feel in the moment will most satisfy even if we know in our minds that it won't. Jamie Smith says it this way in his book, You Are What You Love. He says, it is our desires that orient and direct us towards some ultimate telos we take to be the good life. To be human is to be a lover, and love is a kind of subconscious desire that operates without our thinking about it. What Smith is saying here is that if we ultimately love comfort most, if that is our ultimate prize, that is what we're going to pursue. That is what we're going to run after. If we love sex or money or status or winning most, then ultimately that's what we're going to pursue with our whole life. And our choices will be made with that love in mind. The good news, though, is that we are not powerless in our loves because as Smith reminds us, and as the Bible teaches us, our ultimate loves are not immovable, but rather they are learned and therefore can be changed. Our loves are learned not through study, but through practices and habits, through liturgies, if you will, through the way that we order our lives day in and day out. And what that means, church, is that the hope for our hearts, it's actually nothing flashy or sexy, but it's rather simple. The hope for our hearts growing more and more in love with God is through basic habits and practices. These basic practices that the church has been practicing for thousands of years. Habits and practices that are often referred to as the means of grace. Things like prayer, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper and community being together. What the Bible teaches is that we must practice these things regularly in order to tune our hearts to love God more than the things of this world. These practices are the essence of purposeful restrictions, are they not? In doing them, we are saying no to certain things in order to gain something far greater. Now, I know what you're thinking. 
You're thinking, I've tried. I've tried to put these practices into place thousands of times. They never stick. And so by way of final application, I'd like to give you one more challenge this morning. I'd like to challenge you to try embracing the means of grace with one another. Have you ever noticed how addiction recovery always happens in groups? And the reason why is because studies show that addictive behavior thrives in isolation. Church, the same is true for a lack of self-control. The more isolated we are, the more inclined we are to indulge, to avoid these Christian practices and to allow our desires and our appetites to rule and reign in our lives. But there's something profoundly empowering about community. Together, we have a much greater ability to say no to certain things for the sake of the greater thing. As a staff team, we're right now reading through the book, The Common Rule by Justin Early. And in it, there are eight simple habits that we're supposed to practice individually and then hold each other accountable to corporately. Eight habits that exist to recalibrate our hearts towards God and one another. The habits are simple. Kneeling prayer three times a day. One meal with others every day. An hour each week excuse me, an hour each day with your phone off, beginning each day with scripture before your phone. One hour of conversation with a friend every week. Curate media to four hours a week. Fast from something for 24 hours every week and a weekly Sabbath. There's nothing magical in this list. They're just eight purposeful restrictions that require us to say no to some things in order to say yes to something far greater. And they're habits that I can personally affirm over time. They have this way of retuning our hearts to love God more than his good gifts. That's our part, church. That's how we position ourselves to receive God's growth. By having a clear vision of the crown, the prize that we seek to know God and to make him known. And by training our hearts through the means of grace through these timeless Christian practices to desire that crown more and more. The good news is, and I'll leave you with this, that contrary to the garden in my backyard, God guarantees the results of the garden of your heart. If we position ourselves to receive his growth, there will be much fruit. Much fruit because God has promised that he is at work in and through the means of grace in all of his children, growing his fruit in us, gently molding us into the image of his son more and more each day. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in spite of the fact that we don't have the ability to grow these fruit, these fruit of the spirit in us, that you are at work in each of us that you are growing in us the fruit of the Spirit. In particular, God, we ask that you would grow this fruit of self-control more and more in us. That like the athlete, you would give us a picture, a vision for that prize, to know you and to make you known. And that we would hunger and thirst for that more and more each day. I'd ask that for myself and for every person who's here with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.